0: Welcome to the show. I'm Greg McEwen, and I'm your host for the What's Essential podcast. There are lots of shows on how to improve, on how to become successful, but there is only one on what to do once you are. This is essential because success can be a catalyst for failure, especially if it leads to the undisciplined pursuit of more. This show is about how to become successful at success, it's for high performers who are on the edge of exhaustion, solving problems completely before they even arise. It's about turning tedious tasks into joyful rituals. It's about simplifying your processes and making your most essential activities the easiest ones. So if you're a driven, hardworking, productive person who is running out of space, but still wants to make a higher contribution effortlessly The What's Essential podcast is designed especially for you. So let's begin. My guest today is Arthur C. Brooks, Harvard professor, behavioral social scientist, and columnist at The Atlantic, who specializes in using the highest levels of science and philosophy. Provide people with actionable strategies to live their best lives. He's the best selling author of 11 books on topics ranging from economic opportunity to human happiness. He's the host of the popular The Art of Happiness podcast, available on Apple and Spotify. He was selected as one of Fortune magazine's 50 world's greatest leaders and awarded six honorary doctorates. He's originally from Seattle but now lives in Massachusetts with his wife and three children. You can find him online at arthurbrooks.com. That is A-R-T-H-U-R-B-R-O-O-K-S.com. Arthur Brooks, welcome to the What's Essential podcast.
1: Thank you, Greg. As your
0: audience are all
1: existing fans of yours, but I am too. And what a wonderful opportunity to talk to you. You were on my podcast and it was So well received and it was so much fun. And now we get to continue the conversation. Thank you.
0: Oh, I hope people will go there and listen to that conversation and subscribe to your podcast too. And hearing you say that, I mean, of course you're being polite, but to say that you're a fan of my work is is such a thrilling moment for me because it's one of the real pleasures of doing a podcast, I think at all is... The opportunity to talk with people that you know of by rumor or by reputation or by reading, and then you then you get to talk together and get to know each other and have a relationship, and it really is one of my happiest things with having done this. Uh, and so it's it's my honor to have you on here. I mean, beyond the formal intro, what I should say to people listening is that Arthur Brooks is the real deal. Uh, you know, this is this is someone who's trying, striving. To live by virtuous principles, trying to teach, not just trying to be an influencer in some surface level, but trying to be a teacher, uh, making the classroom beyond uh, Harvard's classroom, which matters too. But you know, to the rest of us, there's so many things we could talk about. Maybe it's a little too forced to do this, but I, I'm looking. To you for a discussion today about, let's call it five rules for how to be happier right now. You know, how to make it easier to be happy right now. I think a lot of people could sign up for insight on that after a year and a half of the pandemic and the civil unrest and the challenges that we've been alluding to here. What's top of mind? When I ask that question to you, what's something that just pops first? And so the first thing that that pops for
1: me is what a lot of people are getting wrong, which is misunderstanding the goal in trying to become happier. And the goal is not to make suffering go away. The goal for most people in being happier is to be more fully alive, more engaged in their own lives. See, most people understand that happiness, real happiness, it requires sort of macronutrients, if you will. Like food is fat, carbohydrates, and proteins. Well, happiness really is three things. It's enjoyment, satisfaction, and purpose.
0: Okay, let's, let's hear that. Enjoyment, satisfaction, and purpose. Okay.
1: Yeah, enjoyment is all positive. It's pleasure with elevation. So it's pleasure with education. And and so you enjoy things. Pleasure is kind of a base, a base um kind of mm-hmm. s- sense that that we get it's it's positive, but but you can elevate it with a little bit of education. This is a reason that the more you learn about music, the more you like it, mm-hmm. because it actually goes from pleasure into enjoyment. This the second is satisfaction, and that is the reward for a goal met or a job well done. Satisfaction is the prize that the at the end of the road for something. And, and it has its own problems. You can't, you know, Mick Jagger saying, I can't get no satisfaction. He should have saying, I can't keep no satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Because there is all sorts of evolutionary tendencies to not let you keep satisfaction, but that's a whole, that's a whole topic. The last one is in, in a way, the most interesting, the biggest mistake that people make is they want happiness without purpose. How do I know that? Because they're trying to alleviate the suffering from their lives assiduously too much. I mean, everybody has suffering, and by the way, suffering can tip over your boat. It can become so debilitating that it becomes a medical problem. I understand that, and I've had a lot of that in you know, members of my family. But the truth is that to be fully alive to put one foot in front of the other requires a lot of suffering. It requires a lot of challenge. It requires a lot of sadness. That's what being alive partly is. And, and nobody finds the purpose in their life without unhappiness. And so the paradox of happiness, the mistake that we make, and the first way to be happy today is to accept unhappiness. I mean, it's, it took me a long time to figure that out as the happiness scholar. Happiness and unhappiness are not the same thing. They're literally processed in different hemispheres of the prefrontal cortex. But unhappiness is a key in, in, in moderation, <laughs> properly understood and, and, and diligently managed Unhappiness is an experience of life, which helps us find our purpose, and purpose is a macronutrient in happiness. So, the first thing that we can do today to be happier is to make
0: peace with our unhappiness. How do we do that? If I'm unhappy about something right now, how do I make peace with it? To begin with,
1: it's to take it out of the realm of feelings. So, the old Buddhist masters, they always talk about observing your feelings. And what they're talking about is actually making emotions, negative emotions in this case, metacognitive, mm-hmm. to become aware of your emotions. Now your emotions, your primary emotions are all produced in the limbic system of your brain. It's sort of affectionately known in my profession as the lizard brain, mm-hmm. or as Daniel Kahneman or Princeton calls it system one. It's where you think fast because it's automatic, but it's not conscious. This is below the level of your conscious imagination of your executive thinking your limbic system is the emotions that you have automatically for all of the evolutionary and survival reasons you need anger you need sadness you need disgust you need especially fear because that keeps you from being threatened and eaten by a saber-toothed tiger the problem is when your unhappiness is when your negative emotions are purely limbic because then they happen to you you're controlled by them Where it gets really interesting and where life gets interesting (laughs) is where you can take these limbic sensations and make them metacognitive, which is to say, to sit with them, to be aware of them. When you actually are observing your own primary emotions, you're moving them to the prefrontal cortex of your brain where they can be managed and where they can become an opportunity for growth. That's the way that we deal with these things. Now, I'm not going to lie and say I like negative emotions. No, I don't like them at all. But I understand that they're necessary and fruitful and meaningful and they give me something that I need in much the same way that, you know, any negative ingredient can be a stimulus. I mean, it's, it's interesting. There are all sorts of things, pathogens that we, in, that we introduce into our lives that have a paradoxical impact of making us more resilient or, you know, ha- having a particular place in the production process of things that we need. And this is a perfect case. If you want negative emotions to not be purely perceived as negative, and by the way, they're not purely negative, they're keeping you alive. But if you want them to be fruitful in your happiness, you need to make them metacognitive by thinking about them, by analyzing them, and by thinking how can what just happened to me that I don't like that's making me sad or angry or fearful, what am I learning from this? And how can it be an opportunity for
0: growth? Yeah, I mean... What you, I think you're saying is that the very second you say, as I've heard people suggest, I am feeling this, I am feeling fear, I am feeling angry, I am feeling out of control, the very act of naming it already improves your situation because you're now shifting the emotion into, as you described, a different part of your brain. And it allows you to observe the emotion rather than just being totally flooded with it.
1: That's right. And that's the, that's the, one of the key observations behind cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a, a wonderful adjunct to medication for people who are clinically depressed. Talk therapy, self-talk. All that self-talk does is you're not convincing yourself of something that's not true. You're simply taking your emotions and making them more than automatic. You're also making them manageable by simply naming them.
0: Yeah, I love that. And, and some of naming is using words you already have to simply state this is this, I am feeling X. Um, And and the second is to discover new words for things you didn't have words for before, new phrases. And you say, oh, I've had this emotion forever. This is what I'm experiencing. And somehow naming it in that way also gives you greater control uh, of, of, of the emotion that you're grappling with. Well, I don't know how many things we just covered. It feels hard to call that number one, um, mm-hmm. but, but I, I feel like, let's break that down. So you certainly covered one thing, which is this naming of the emotion so that we can stand apart from it. That I would take as, as one different thing. Uh, did we cover a second that we can unit as a number two uh, thing someone can do?
1: We could call number two making peace with your unhappiness, although they really are part and parcel of the same meta yeah, idea. I think, I think so. So
0: we just call that Well, that's still going to be bucket one. What's the second idea for what somebody can do to increase their happiness right now? The second thing I think for people to remember
1: is that we all have a baseline level of happiness that is governed at least half in 50% by our genetics. That's incredibly powerful and believe it or not, empowering information because every one of us has a baseline and our baseline might be lower than somebody else's. But understanding that helps us to understand also that we have a unique charism. We have a unique set of gifts and that an a enthusiastic, enthusiastic, you know, optimistic outlook on life might not be part of our gifts, but that we have unique gifts in spite of that. We're wired in a particular way. And let me let me explain what I mean by that. There's a, a test, a personality test that I administer to my students at Harvard Business School every spring. It's called a positive affect, negative affect uh, survey, or it's P-A-N-A-S. And you can find it online panis. You can find it online all over the place. And what it'll tell you is whether you're unusually high or low in positive affect, which is to say good feelings, unusually high or low in negative affect, which is to say bad feelings. And what people find is that bad feelings and good feelings are not mutually exclusive. (laughs) Just because you're high in negative affect doesn't mean you're low in positive affect. On the contrary, you can be high in both, low in both, high in one or high in the other. And this is really interesting because what it, what it turns out, it has a lot to do with your heredity, your genetic or epigenetic wiring uh, in terms of your happiness and the emotions that you, you have a tendency to feel and feel really deeply. And why that's really empowering is because, you know, I can, I can, if you're somebody who has incredibly strong, positive and negative affect, you're both happier than normal average and unhappier than average, then you're kind of a mad scientist. And there's a world for you. There's a role for you, but it's hard for you to find it unless you know it. And believe it or not, knowing about your unique personality profile makes you happier because it gives you power to understand where you fit in. People who are low and low, low affect and high uh, uh, and positive affect and low and negative affect. I know lots of people like this. I call these judges they're sober, they're stable. You don't want me as a judge. No way, I'm jumping all over the place. You want somebody who is low in positive and negative affect, who's not moved to excess emotion that can be counted on all the
0: time. Two things were interesting there to me. One, can people go and take that assessment?
1: Yes, absolutely. There's a a website that my old friend, Martin Seligman, who teaches at University of Pennsylvania, he invented the field of positive psychology. And he has a website called Authentic mm-hmm. Happiness. So if you just Google authentic happiness and then you know log into their website and there's a battery of about 30 personality and happiness tests, and PANAS is one of them. It's one of the most interesting.
0: The other thing that was interesting to me is just that simple point that understanding that you are a particular type is itself correlated with feeling happier. And It seems that that makes sense to me, but it names something that we, Joe, like a deep breath, like, oh, I don't have to be like everyone else. There's a a version of me that I get to be, and I don't need to try and force my way out of, uh, of, of certain ranges that I'm in. And so this idea of becoming more and more of who you really are and less and less of who you really aren't, I think is key to happiness, but also I think key to just a more effortless life or or, or less wasted effort on, or, you know, on things that just aren't going to produce great results. This episode is sponsored by Shopify. Selling a little or a lot. <laughs> Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash greg, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash greg now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash greg.
1: We're in your turf. I mean, we're talking about effortlessness and you can't, your life is full of needless effort when you're not being yourself. When you don't actually understand what your unique talents are, if you're trying to, you know, get in the big leagues of somebody else's personality and you don't fit, you'll just feel incompetent. There's no way that you can lead an effortless life when you don't understand yourself. So
0: that brings a lot of happiness to take a lot of the excess effort out of what you're
1: trying to do to succeed.
0: As I listened to it, it just had a feeling of relief. I could imagine people hearing it just, oh yeah, I, that's Right. I don't have to be like everyone else. I need to embrace that actually a lot of me is fixed a certain way. And there are things I can do beyond it, of course, through action to improve or to be more happy. But I, one of the ways to get there isn't to just be like my ultra optimistic spouse, child, mother, father, whatever. Like the, there's, a, there's a place for me and my particular way of being. Give me number three.
1: Number three is what comes out of the all of the data on how to live a happy and successful life. And, and I'll appeal on this to. There's a famous study that came out of Harvard University called the Harvard Study on Adult Development, which is an 80-year longitudinal study that started with college students, matched them up with people who didn't go to college, um, then looked at their kids and grandkids, in over 80 years – Became a crystal ball, and if you are this, most likely it's going to turn out like that. It's very, very powerful. And the end of the and there's there's a lot of things that go into it. I mean, there's there's a lot of you know the seven things that you should do if you want to age well. If you there's any any clue that there's drinking problems in your family or in your life, you should stop drinking. Because that, that will lead to huge problems. You shouldn't smoke. You should exercise. You, you should stay interested in things you should read, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But number one on a walk is good relationships and, and having a lot of love in your life. That's the secret to a happy life. And it fits in with the 80 years of the Harvard Adult Development Study that happiness is love. Full stop. And so what we need to be doing is cultivating the love relationships in our life. If you want to be happier today, love more today. If you don't feel any love, it doesn't really matter because to love is to will the good of the other. You can act out love and the, feel will, the feeling will come naturally. And so secret number three to becoming happier today, tomorrow, next week, and for the rest of your life is to love others
0: more. Yeah, I love that. I remember Stephen Covey used to say, love is a verb and we tend to want it to be or, or it gets presented in any number of movies and books and so on as a feeling I mean it's almost always presented as a feeling uh, and he's saying of course love is a feeling as well but it it starts as love is a verb it's what you do it's how you treat someone as you treat them as you treat them with love you tend to receive love there seems to be an almost exact reciprocation we are deeply reciprocal beings I love principle three and
1: it's open to all of us too because it's an act of will so people who say I don't feel it it doesn't as you mentioned it doesn't matter each of us has this under our control it's the ridiculous most
0: easy thing that we could possibly do is to show love okay so now now you intrigue me on that how is it so easy it's easy insofar
1: as it is an, a conscious act of will and it can be very small. When you don't feel like saying, I love you, that's when you should most say, I love you. And it's three words. It's only hard because we make it hard. And the reason that we make it hard is because of our pride. You know, so when when you're fighting with your spouse and you don't want to say, I love you, it's because you're being prideful. And that, of course, that pridefulness is, is hitting yourself in the head with a brick. It's completely counterproductive. The easiest thing to do is to do what you want the thing that you want you crave love but you're blocking yourself off you're making it harder than it actually should be there are acts of love that are tricky that are challenging that are that take lots of time that are hard for us to do that are relatively hard but the basic act of of will of willing the good of the other of expressing something notwithstanding our feelings that's something that's open to all of us we're all able to do that because we're we're, we're sentient human beings We can go against our instincts, and doing that in and of itself is unbelievably freeing. So that's what I'm talking about. That's actually not
0: hard, and it gets easier with practice. I remember coming across in the research for effortless the idea that, that according to some psychologists and neuroscientists, they've measured it between two and three seconds, that that's really the now we experience. And so it has a lot of ramifications. It takes it from the philosophical, oh, the now, the great now, we all live in the now to going, oh, you, we have two and three seconds. Like, that's it. That is, our, that is our actionable window. And so when you say, I love you, it's three words. Yeah, it's the two to three seconds we have. What did you say? Love is ridiculously, love is ridiculously easy. That's, to me, a profound statement as you know, as I've been teaching principles of Effortless Now, I am amazed at how deeply entrenched people are in the idea that virtuous action, that essential work is inherently the hardest work. What a clever lie. All it really means is looking at someone else And saying something nice to them, saying something kind, expressing an action, you know, a small sense of love or admiration or encouragement. Yeah. And you will immediately be happier. Immediately. Immediately be happier. There's a hack but it happens
1: to have its basis in the deepest, deepest truths of philosophy, theology, spirituality of all the good things that have gone back for all the millennia of human civilization. Give me number four. You want number four and number four follows from number three, which is choose gratitude. Gratitude is, is unbelievably underused by people and it is free to everybody. And, you know, there's a lot of research that says, you know, if you make a gratitude list on Sunday, just make the list of the five things that you're most grateful for in your life. And I don't care if they're little or small or stupid or or profound. And, and then study it every day for five minutes and update it on Sundays. By the end of 10 weeks, you'll, you'll be somewhere on average between 10 and 25% happier. Gratitude is the most efficacious. and It's even easier than love in its way. It's the most efficacious way that people can turn their, their orientation toward the world around. They can become happier immediately. They will also change the orientation that people have toward them. Gratitude, in in a way, it reprograms your brain. There's a lot of good neuroscience about how gratitude affects your your outlook on things and the parts of the brain from the ventral striatum, which is the part of the brain that that governs good feelings and pleasure. You will literally feel better immediately. You will have happier sensations and you will, will become, no matter how you started, you will become more grateful if you express gratitude. So number four is express gratitude.
0: Yeah, I'm completely consumed with this this idea that you can't overdo it with gratitude. Most principles have a, quite a quick limit to them. You say, "Okay, we'll we'll do this, but not too much." And I have yet to find I, I have yet to find anything like the the edge of that in my own pursuits of it. I've kept a gratitude journal for 10 years now. I don't think I've missed a day in 10 years, which means that I have, you know, well beyond 10,000 items written down now. And I love it. I love doing it every day. It's great for mental health. I started a practice, I don't remember if you and I talked about this before, but after I complain, I will say something I am thankful for. Mm -hmm. That simple rule. And how, when we've done it in our family and introduced it, and so I'm encouraging everyone else to do it, someone will complain and I'll say, that's fine, now tell me something you're thankful for. And, right. And, and my son, oh, well, I'm thankful that dad wants to play this game where we always have to say something we're thankful for after we complain. Huh. And everyone huh. laughed huh. and it immediately worked. That's it its power. I love that's so number four. Number five. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Number
1: five is one of the most counterintuitive, but it's going to make sense when I say it. We all think that we're going to find satisfaction in life if we have what we want. We need to stop managing our haves and start managing our wants. Now, the way to understand this basic concept is that your satisfaction is not a function of what you have. You act that way. We all act this way. The much regretted bucket list. I suppose when you came to the United States, you were amazed by this concept of of keeping an actual <laughs> list of your cravings and desires and your attachments. I mean, it's just so <laughs> it's the most non-Buddhist thing in the world. In <laughs> and and you're supposed to look at it and admire it and say, "I'm going to get these things." What you're doing is you're you're lowering your satisfaction. People believe that their satisfaction is a function of what they have. They forget that their true satisfaction is a function of what they have divided by what they want. And we all remember enough of our high school fractions to know that <laughs> when you increase the denominator of a fraction, the entire number falls. That's just absolutely true in the case of our wants. And so we have this lifelong haves management strategy where you acquire and you work to get things and you desire possessions and entertainment and relationships and status and prestige and power and especially money and stuff and you're on a treadmill, and you can't get that satisfaction, why not? The reason is because you're not managing the wants. So what I recommend that everybody do to become happier immediately is today to make a reverse bucket list. Take some time to make a list of your desires and your cravings, your the things that you wish you had. Absolutely. And then make it metacognitive, like we talked about earlier in the conversation, by going through that list and say, I am detaching myself from these things. I don't mind if I get these things, but I no longer want them. These are not things that are going to be my priority to have. This is what the Dalai Lama says. He says that if you, for stable and steady satisfaction, you need not to have what you want, but to want what you have. And the way to do that is with this idea of wants management. That's the fifth secret, and that's a a big one, and that actually is a hard one. It requires conscious action. The reverse bucket list is a good place to start. Another good place to start is to go on a consumption fast for one week a month. Don't buy anything except essentials like food. One week a month. You're not going to even look at Amazon.com. You're not going to look at eBay or Etsy or any other, or, you know, Realtor.com or whatever, is your vice when it comes to consumption? Because what that's doing is that's that's a halves management strategy, which is leaving you in in lower and lower and lower states of satisfaction, which lowers your happiness. That's one of the macronutrients of happiness. To manage your wants aggressively and confidently, counterculturally, boy, that's really powerful stuff, and you'll never you'll never be sorry that you'll never go back. Quite frankly, I mean, it's easy to to stop these patterns. But once you get into the habit of, of, of managing your wants, it's life-changing.
0: Mm. Uh, I that there's so much more to that one. And I personally can attest to it and, uh, and struggle with it and, and love the idea of aggressively managing your wants. Uh, I think that's terrific. Essentialists, one and all, thank you for listening to another episode, this time with marvelous Arthur Brooks If you've enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, uh, on iTunes. And in fact, the very first person to do this and to leave a review and just take a screenshot of it, email me at greg at gregmckeon.com. I will send you a copy of Love Your Enemies, the last book that Arthur Brooks put out. You know, we just love hearing the feedback. It really helps in spreading this podcast to new listeners beyond in our essentialist community. And I want to end, as I always do, reminding you that if you don't do anything else, just ask what's essential and eliminate as much as possible of everything else, which is so consistent with what you have just taught us. Arthur Brooks, I just can't wait till the next time. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Greg. Thanks to all of our listeners.
2: This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network.